You're listening to Speak Loud, resilient stories of triumph and hope, helping you to turn your past into fuel for your best future. Here's your host, founder of the 501c3 Share, providing resource and support for trauma victims, and a survivor herself, Tiffany Barnes. Hello, and welcome to the Speak Loud podcast. As always, I am your host, Tiffany Barnes, and I have the pleasure of introducing my guest today. She comes far and wide from just outside Nashville, Tennessee, I believe is what she told me, Uh, a place that I believe is so beautiful. If you haven't been there, you got to check it out. Her name is Bruce Rawlings, and she is the author of two memoirs, Scars and Driving in the Rain, and she also is a survivor of abuse in all of its forms. Uh, On top of being an author, she uses her grains of her once gritty life to infuse her stories with cathartic realism. She grew up traveling the world and living in various countries before finally settling in Los Angeles. There she briefly worked at a vitamin factory and then began a long career in the film industry. She has been in recovery since 1998 from drugs, alcohol, and an abusive but privileged upbringing. She and her husband have now settled into the Nashville area where she writes by the lake where she can escape with her six kids and her dog. Please welcome Bruce Rawlings. Hi, it's actually Nadia Bruce Rawlings. I know there was some confusion. Sorry about that. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so thank you so much. Yeah, I'm in Old Hickory, Tennessee, just outside Nashville. And um, it's hot and steamy. And here I am with you. Yeah, nice. But it's not as hot as it is here, I've heard. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going on 99 degrees today, which, man, for us here in Utah, that's insane. That's just that's, so hot. That's <laughs> Although we're desert heat. We don't have that humidity. You know, that humidity will get you. So, yeah, I apologize. It's Nadia Bruce Rawlings. I misunderstood what you were telling me before. So, uh, Nadia Bruce Rawlings. And I want to go into... Not too much in depth because we don't want to trigger the audience. Right. But I would love for you to give us a, a glimpse into your upbringing and your childhood and, and some of the abuses that you have endured that kind of led to maybe some of your addictions as well. Right. Well, my father and most of his family were alcoholic, um, although he would never have admitted that. Mm. And he was very Jekyll and Hyde when he drank and very, very verbally abusive to, to the kids and to his wife, my mother. Um, He went through a brief period of, of physical abuse with my mom, um, which was pretty bad. And um, he was just emotionally just, horrible really um and then because of that that's what I grew up with and that's kind of what I thought love was all about you know um so I sort of sought out relationships that were emotionally abusive if not physically um and And then, of course, I tried not to be like him as far as drinking, but then, you know, of course I did. (laughs) And I was a big alcoholic. And then I later became a crackhead because that took away all the emotions. 
Um, and I didn't want to feel. And um, so I went, I ended up going to rehab for six months, 23 years ago, 24 years ago. So I have 23 years sober um, and continue to help other women get sober and other women to sort of beat the cycle of abuse and alcoholism and addiction. So I want to ask you, I want to hone in on this one aspect of something that you've talked about. You associated love with abuse because that's all you knew. Yeah. So you, you sought out relationships that are either emotionally or mentally or physically abusive. Yeah. So, but you're married now and you've got six wonderful children. You've got your most important job, which is being a mother. Yeah. So how did you finally turn that switch, if you will, for our audience that's listening to be able to get into a healthy relationship as you are currently in? It took a good while, even when I was sober, first sober, and I was I was having relationships that I thought emotionally vacant people were just, you know, they just needed me to do something to let them suddenly become emotionally available. Mm -hmm. But I didn't quite know what that was. And of course, neither did they. Um, and then um, it took a while. And, and what, ha what actually happened is I re-met someone who I had dated when I was in my 20s. And um, it turned out he was sober and divorced because he'd left me to get married, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, which really sucked because <laughs> um, I didn't know he was dating anyone else. Um, and he was sober and um, he, you know, we both tried really hard to do, I mean, I'm breaking all our anonymity here, but to do the 12 steps in our lives Mm -hmm. which means don't go to bed angry. Communication is key. Um, don't, you know, I, I always thought that there was some mystique of, of them being emotionally vacant, that that was like this secret sort of mystique. And then, and then, <laughs> um, you know, emotionally, mean, um, of course, was, I don't know, I just always thought I could change them. And it finally dawned on me, I think it took a lot of therapy, honestly, um, PTSD therapy. Um, and then to find someone who was willing to do the work themselves, and who had also been, you know, in a relationship that was crap for 16 years. Um, not only it wasn't all her fault, it was certainly his fault as well. And my, my relationships were also my fault as well. I, I don't want to put blame on anyone. Um, but it took us both, you know, doing a lot of work. And um, we did therapy before we got married, um, which he wasn't real keen on, but he agreed to do because he wanted our relationship to work, you know? Right. So what I'm hearing you say is you were looking for people that were emotionally vacant, but how would you identify that? Obviously when you see somebody, you're more attracted to maybe them as a person physically 
right? And then you would get to know these people and you're like, ah, okay, that's the kind of man I like because that's all you knew. Is that kind of how it went down? Yeah. And it was sort of that, that, you know, the, the ever present bad boy. Um, I always (laughs) like, I would go out with musicians a lot and thinking that they were so sensitive because they wrote sensitive songs or something. Mm -hmm. And yet in real life, they weren't. Um, they had demons. They, they had, yeah, they were vacant. Um, they put it, I don't know. I don't know how that even happens, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. No, it's it's intriguing to me because I found that on that same pattern in my life, in a sense. That's why I'm asking you these questions, because I'm yeah, sure yeah. there's people that are listening and they say the same thing. You know, I always thought, man, I have some kind of magnet inside of me. I used to say it was like a weirdo magnet. <laughs> you know, yeah. I would just attract these weird guys or I would attract married men. Mm-hmm. or I would attract men that somehow knew I was abused somewhere in my past. And so maybe they knew they could get away with it, if that makes sense. Definitely. Um, You know, and so I just I want to kind of see your perspective on it, because I know there's got to be people listening to this episode saying I have that same thing happening with me. So that's why I say, how did you break that with your husband? You know, you said you went through a lot of therapy and things of that nature. And obviously, you now hindsight 2020 realize that's what you were attracting or attracted to rather. So I just kind of wonder what kind of piece of advice you had for somebody who's in your shoes 20 years ago, attracting that musician and those bad relationships. And also, instead of jumping into a relationship right away, like with my husband, we actually waited a while um, before we even kissed, (laughs) you know, and um both of our sponsors were like, Oh, you have to wait till he has a year sober. And he only had like nine months. And I was like, "Uh, I don't know about that, but (laughs) (laughs) um, we both waited, we chatted, we got to know each other. Um, Whereas before I thought, I also thought that if I had sex with them, um, that would make them love me. Mm. instantly because I was so good or something. I don't know what the hell my head was, where my head was. Yeah. But um, yeah, I always thought that sex, I got sex or lust confused with love. Mm. And you think, were you sexually abused as a child? I wasn't, but I knew a lot of people that were, and my my brother and sister said they were before they, before my mom married my father. Got it. Yeah. I just wondered if there was a correlation there, you know, if you had suffered some form of sexual abuse now kind of growing up, seeing the way your mother was treated, you know, that kind of set the stage for you accepting how you were treated in a negative capacity as well. Yeah. And then you turn to the drug and alcohol scene. Kind of yeah. lead me into that. What age were you when you you tried that first drug or you started to rely heavily on alcohol? Do you remember? Yeah. So I was 12 when I started drinking to get drunk. Mm. I mean, we had my mom was French, so we kind of always had wine and stuff. But I was 12 when I started setting out to get drunk. And then um We lived, I lived overseas. I lived in Egypt and Norway, and then we moved to the States my senior year of high school. And in Norway, there weren't really drugs available. There was some weed. And so I smoked weed like, like 10th grade, 11th grade. Mm. 
But when I got to the States, I found speed and then cocaine my senior year. So I was like 16 or 17. And, um, and I was incredibly shy, which is why I drank. Like I remember going to my junior prom before I went to my prom, I drank a whole, um, not a whole bottle, but a whole like water glass of vodka before my date picked me up. So I was drunk by the time he got there. Oh, wow. And it, and it went on from there. The night is a blur. I don't know what happened. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and that's how, what I did. And then when I found cocaine, that brought me out even more. And then eventually, you know, it was the eighties. So it was, it was a lot of cocaine. And then, Eventually, I stopped doing drugs, but I was still drinking. Um, what and made I was, you stop the drugs? Well, because I almost lost my job. And mm-hmm. I, like even my dealer was like, no, you can't. I can't sell to you anymore. You're going to die. Mm-hmm. And I weighed like nothing. So for like five years, I just drank an incredible amount. And then I started dating someone who did cocaine. And um and I didn't know where to find it, but we knew where to find crack. And that's how I started doing crack. Um, and I was like 28. And my mom had just found out she had cancer, mm. lung cancer. And I, she and I were very close. And so, I, you know, I was like depressed. I had depression my whole childhood, my whole everything, but no one really knew about depression back then. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another reason I drank and did drugs because it made me happier. I thought. <laughs> and, um, so when my mom finally died in a little holistic clinic in Tijuana, Mexico, um, I just started smoking crack 24 hours a day as much as I possibly could. And, um, to numb the pain or for what reason? Yeah. She had died when I, I left the room for a few minutes to, to let her sleep and she died then. And I fell asleep and she died. Mm. And so in my head, like, as soon as I would go to sleep, my body would wake myself up. Um, Mm. It was, and so, and I would have horrible dreams and, and um, so the crack just took all away all that pain, sort of. Um, so for four years, that's all I did was smoke crack 24 hours a day and I shoplifted to pay for it. <laughs> really? And um, went to, went to jail several times, got two felonies. Um, yeah. And finally went to rehab. And that time you stayed clean. Yeah. I had gone one one time to rehab for like two weeks and I didn't stay clean. And this time I went for six months and, um, and it was really tough. And it was also right around the corner from my um, dealers, my old dealers apartment. Oh, wow. And, um, and I would see like all the people I used to hang out with out on the street. Um, I could see them from my bedroom window. And um, I just, I was so determined because I knew I was going to die if I, you know, if I didn't stay clean or go to prison. And I really didn't want to go to prison because jail was bad enough, you know. Yeah. 
Um, so, so what was that like, though? You're looking out the window, you see your dealers around the corner and these people that you used to hang out with when you lived that life, but you're trying to have the willpower to stay clean. Did you have a tempting moment or two while you were? Oh, in yeah. That? Yeah. And there were I mean, it was an all women's facility and it was very small. There were like 30 people, maybe, maybe. And um, a lot of them did leave. It wasn't a locked facility or anything. Oh, um, so a lot of them did leave and, um, I just was so determined by the time I got there, I remember sitting on the, um, it was these two old houses, these two Victorian houses in downtown LA mm-hmm. and, um, they were just like, so beautiful to me. Cause I came right from jail <laughs> and I was like, Oh, and, um, this is an upgrade. <laughs> yes, definitely. There were birds. Um, and I just sat there and cried. And I think, you know, in retrospect, I was just saying goodbye to that life. Wow. Because um, it was pretty, I mean, I had guns held to my head. I was raped. I was, you know, it was, it was a bad four years. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you had the fortitude and the resilience to say, no, I have to stop now or I'm going to die. Yeah. You know? And and as you mentioned, you started getting into these things because it was a Band-Aid for you or a mask, right? You were shy. It got you out of your shell. You know, we've heard that when people drink, it kind of gets you out of your shell and those inhibitions, you know, kind of come out and go away and all that. And so then it, t- it goes from speed or weed to speed to heavier drugs. Right. And a lot of people, this is the case, you know, there's a lot of teenagers right now on the street. I work a lot with uh, homeless teens and a lot of them are escaping abusive situations and they turn to drugs because they don't want to face what's inside their mind. You know, they're dealing with the anxiety and the depression, you know, anxiety is like, you know, um, you know, I kind of equate it to you want to hang out with people, but you don't, but then you don't want to be lonely. You know, it's kind of like you're constantly in this battle with yourself mentally and it's a prison, you know, and I can totally see not that I'm condoning drugs and I'm not saying people should do drugs. Um, but I can totally see coming from my past because I relate to where you've come from as far as the abusive standpoint, why people would turn to drugs or alcohol to mask that pain. Cause it's a process. It's not easy. It's not something that you flip a switch. You go to a few counseling sessions and bing, bang, boom, you're all cured. You know, here I am 39 years old. I still have things that come up and I'm sure you do too in, in your life. So what advice do you have to the listeners of people who might be out there suffering from these addictions to come out the other side as you have? I mean, I, I did, I mean, for me, it took, definitely took rehab because, you know, I was homeless. Did I mention that? I was homeless. Um, I'd lost everything I owned. And, you know, I, at first I thought I just needed like some Prozac and a few clothes. Um, But really I needed to spend hours writing out my feelings going to group, going to talking about it, hearing other people's stories and what they were doing, um, telling my own story and, and getting out those feelings. I had never grieved my mom because 
I was on crack the whole time. Mm. So I literally to spend a week writing a goodbye letter to her. And I, I drove everybody crazy there because I was just crying and crying for a week. <laughs> and um, But I needed to do that. Um, I needed to get all those feelings out and really listen to the people, the, the counselors. And, um, you know, we, um, I, I guess... They got me to a psychiatrist, so I was able to get on antidepressants, which for me I needed. Um, even after, well, gosh, after I got out of rehab, I got pregnant. Two weeks after I got out of rehab, <laughs> which I don't necessarily recommend, but in my case, she's my angel and she's 21 years old. Um, she probably saved you in a way, too. She right? really did. Um I, yeah, totally. Because that gave me another reason to build a life. Right. Um, and, you know, and I kept going to 12 step meetings. I kept um, doing counseling. Definitely like therapy was my friend. Um, just doing everything they told me to do. I really surrendered because I would do anything to get my drug. Mm -hmm. You know, I would do go to any means to get my drug. So I had to go to any means to get sober. Yeah. That's um, interesting how you flip that. You know, you see some people that go through rehab. I have a cousin who's had some drug addictions and now his focus is on bodybuilding. So oh, he yeah. now is addicted to going to the gym and yeah. working on his physique and he's getting his training to be able to be a personal trainer and all of that. And he's fallen off the wagon, as they say, you know, and, and gone through all these programs. But this time now I see that he's finally turning that corner as you have and seeing, look, I have to stop this. And so I think a lot of people and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I've never had a drug addiction, but they find something else to be addicted to. And then that's their focus, right? Yeah. Yeah. In a good and with way. Me, I mean, you know, unfortunately I have a little bit of a shopping issue right now, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but in the, the good way was, was meetings and therapy and, and um, writing. I, mm -hmm. I, I spent a lot of time writing short stories and writing looks at sanity and insanity is what I like to call it. Um, um, yeah. Why do you think you found solace in writing? I can relate to that. I also wrote quite often. I journaled a lot yeah. um, and, and wrote a lot of poetry. Why did you specifically feel that writing helped you? Was it because you weren't judged by your writing? You know, it was just you that only saw it. It was your way to, as you mentioned, kind of, um, detoxify yourself of those emotions, you know, kind of put us in your space, why it was so important for you. Definitely those, what you mentioned. I mean, I, um, something just took over when I takes over when I write and I, and I don't now I don't write that often. I used to write every day and journal every day. Now I don't do that as much. Um, but it just would come out. Feelings would just, come out and it was just um so cathartic i, I don't know why <laughs> yeah. but i could just get say anything i wanted to say 
and then, you know, burn it if I wanted, I wanted to make sure no one saw it or, or something like that or throw it to the, you know, into the ocean or something. Have you ever gone back and looked at those journals from when you were going through the deepest, darkest shit? Yes. And said, oh, my gosh, I remember being there or, or anything like that. Yeah, I have everything that I wrote during um, rehabs tucked away in the in the basement. And I we had to write. It was kind of goofy. It was a, we had to write a letter to God every day to our higher power, whatever we thought was our higher power. And it could be anything. Um, and they would, it was in a notebook and they would check to make sure we'd read it or written it, but that they wouldn't read it. Mm-hmm. And I found that recently. And, um, it's so funny, the change in that six month period, like every day was, was me growing just a little, you know, and, um, and you could see that in your writing. Yeah. That's awesome. Just diff- And then the different drama that was going on in the house was hilarious, <laughs> too, because a bunch of women living together, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is sure to ensue some some fun times. That's for sure. Definitely. So take us into, I want to talk about your books. Uh, your first book was called Scars. Is that the first one that you wrote? Yes. And uh, what kind of book is it? And tell us what inspired you to write it. Well, it's a book, it's short stories and, and poetry, and all but two book, two stories are, are memoir. Two of them are fiction. Um, so I can only sell it as a, as a fiction book. But um, it, what, what happened was I had been writing short stories like since you know, forever. Mm-hmm. And since I got sober, I kept them all. And, um, and I had one that I wrote, which is the, the beginning of the book in the first story in the book called fire, which I really liked. And it was, it's about a woman who's abused by her father. Um, and it's, it's fiction. And I sent it to um, this woman I knew in LA who had a publishing company and I um, vaguely, vaguely knew her in LA more. My brother knew her. I was kind of worshiped her from afar. She was a, a publisher and a writer and a, and a musician and all, you know, really big in the punk scene. Um, and I sent it to her on Facebook, fully not expecting to hear back, but I just asked her for some feedback on it. And six months later, I got a little Facebook message saying, can you, can I call you? And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) So so she called me and she said, that's, you write, she said, you write phenomenally. And I want to publish a collection of your short stories. And I was like, I was seriously was like running around the house crying and screaming. (laughs) And, And, um, so I got together most of my short stories and I had to write a couple more and I wrote a few poems as well. And we published it and that was in, uh, I think, 2014. Yeah. Late 2014. And um, it's all basically about abuse and addiction and alcoholism and, and then recovery and then you know it ends on a happy note but it's very intense 
And um, my friend and I put together a show that helped out. Um, we raised money for Thistle Farms, which is a, a shelter for abused women here in Nashville. And we, I did some reading and she did some reading of her work and she sang some songs that had to do with the, her, her work. And um, it was at a, the theater. It was the, the um, pick of the week for the weekly scene magazine, Nashville scene. Um, and all the women came from Thistle Farms and, and it was, it was great. It was a two day thing. Um, and I had women, women coming up to me saying, you know, hearing you read your stories has helped me, has helped open like something inside of me. And now I feel like I can help other people and I can, you know, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was just, it was so, we were crying. <laughs> we were, um, the audience was crying. I was crying. Everybody was crying. It was very um, uplifting. So now... Um, uh, that's another thing is Punk Hostage Press, which is my publishing company. They are, um, they go into prisons and women's shelters and, and, um, halfway houses and they bring books and they teach writing and stuff like that. It's a nonprofit organization. And you work closely with them now. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. So you have these emotions, you know, reading this book to these these women that need to hear these stories so much. Did you have any like sort of epiphany inside or like an aha moment? Like, OK, this is why I went through what I did so I can be a catalyst for others. Definitely. Definitely. And I what's funny is someone today, one of my friends on Facebook posted what what is your meaning of life? Mm hmm. Um, why are you on earth? And I was like to help other, other women who've fought addiction and abuse. Ooh, um, that gives me chills. I love that. Yeah. And it, and you know, it took me a long time to figure that out, but, and it's, I work with, you know, I have like seven sponsees, seven or eight. I'm not sure. It depends on the day. <laughs> and, um, and I meet with them every week and we go over, you know, their lives together. And I'm sure they really look up to you as a mentor or a sponsor because you have been in their shoes, right? Right. I, if I were sitting in their shoes, I would think, well, I don't want to listen to this lady if she doesn't know what I've gone through. And you've been through the trenches. As I mentioned, you've been through the shit. You've been through the darkness. Yeah. So, you know, like what it's like to feel those withdrawals and those feelings and emotions that come with it. So yeah. it's just so beautiful. You know, my audience can't see you because it's just the audio recording, but you have a light about you like to know where you've come from. I would have never guessed that if if I just met you in a cafe and I didn't know you had these books and I didn't know you had that background, I would have never guessed. You know, you just have turned your life around so completely. And it's amazing that I, I would call you a light worker. You're out there spreading the light in dark places, right? You're helping people, oh, I love that. you know, lead people to the light. Um, so let's talk about that second book. It's called Driving in the Rain. Yes. Why did you choose that title? Tell me about this book. This is funny. So I had written, so over like four years, I'd written a few more stories and some poetry and, and Iris, my publisher was like, you know, you got to put out another book. And, um, 
and we were talking about doing a second edition of scars, but then we were like, no, let's do. And so we were, we were going to call it um, memory in motion or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was sending her cover photographs to choose from. And I sent her two that my sister had done. And on the email was another shot that I didn't want her to, to look at, but it was just attached to the email and I couldn't take it off for some reason. And I was like, don't look at that, that one. And she emailed me back right away. And she's like, no, 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 that's the one. And it's a picture of, um, a car through a car windshield of dark and at night in the rain of lights and rain falling and red lights and, and headlights um, reflecting off the rain. And, <laughs> and she's, she said, and it's going to be called driving in the rain. And I said, but I don't have anything called driving in the rain. She goes, it doesn't matter. Write something. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I was like, okay. And so that night I wrote a poem called driving in the rain. And, um, and the rest of the story, it's a little different from scars. It's more, it does go back into mostly it's all, sorry, I'm all over the place here. Mostly it's all sobriety, but some of it does go back into like when I was a young kid growing up in Egypt and, um, when I was like, there's a couple, there's a story about my dealers and there's, you know, a few, a few drug stories and then a few sober stories and, um, and some poetry. And there's a poem about the pandemic and cause it had to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Life changing for sure. Yeah. But this one's all a memoir. Love it. So let's say somebody's listening to this. They want to get their hands on a copy of the book. How do they get that? Well, either on Amazon or my preferred method is my website, because I actually see the money from that, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which is NadiaBruceRawlings.com. It's all one word, and it's N-A-D-I-A-B-R-U-C-E-R-A-W-L-I-N-G-S.com. Love it. We'll also put that in the show notes so you know. Okay. Yeah, for people. And then let's say people want to follow you on Facebook or reach out to you and just say, hey, what you told me really resonates. Do you offer any coaching or things of that nature? Um, I certainly could. I haven't, but I sponsor people, so I don't see why I couldn't coach people. Um, so my Instagram is Nadia Bruce Rawlings, and my Facebook is Nadia Bruce Rawlings Writer, comma, Writer. Okay. Um, and I have a Twitter, but to be honest, I never tweet, so it's useless to give it to you. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) You're like, you can go there, but I never post anything. (laughs) So I want to ask you a few questions before we get into 20 questions. We're running out of time here. I could talk to you forever, by the way, like you have have so much uh, knowledge here. So let me ask you this. What do you wish you could turn back the clock and say to your younger self? Oh, well, two things. Don't smoke crack. (laughs) And, um, just love yourself. There was someone when I was trying to get sober 
who had known for years said to me, I just wish you could love yourself as much as we all love you. Mm. And that stuck with me forever. Mm. Yeah. I love that. It's so true. We don't see our worth, you know, and, and we don't see what other people see. So yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Tell me what makes you feel empowered? Huh. Hmm. Um, I don't really know. I guess. I mean, you know, I've, I don't know, just looking back at my life, um, how much I've changed and how much more I used to be so shy and so quiet and, and so meek and let people run all over me. And I'm not that person anymore. And um, what led me there is just the life I lived, you know? Yeah. Looking at your life definitely is empowering for sure yeah. from where yeah. you are to, you know, where you once were. Wow. Uh, do you have any passion projects you're working on right now or a book <laughs> in the future? Don't. I'm trying to figure out what my next book will be. Cause I, I can't really do much more memoir. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I'm trying to write more poetry rather than short stories. I, I always felt I wasn't very good at poetry, but the ones in Driving in the Rain, I really like. Um, so I want to improve upon my poetry. I'm actually doing a reading, if you're in the Nashville area, I'm doing a reading on Monday the 7th. Where at? At a place called Fat Bites. Fat, P-H-A-T, Fat Bites at 6 p.m., very nice. Okay. So I want to ask you this question um, and I want you to think about it before you answer. Who is Nadia Bruce Rawlings? Well, so golly um <laughs> i put you on the spot huh yeah i mean i'm kind of a goofball i'm quiet um but i'm happy in my solitude if that makes sense um i love i'm quiet and i hate people but i love people as well which i learned during the pandemic um I just need the right people around me. And those are people who's, who enjoy, you know, enjoy life and what we've been given. Mm. I love that. And maybe just accept you who you are and all your quirkiness, right? Yeah. Cause Not I'm trying to change you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, my husband says, as he looked at me and he said, you know, it takes a lot to accept all this. <laughs> I was like, yeah. As anyone would say about all of us, we all yes. have our plus and minuses, right? In our quirks. All right. Any last words? What do you actually, what do you hope the audience will take away from this episode? Um, really love yourself enough to get help. Whether if you're being, if you're being abused, please get help. Um, you can call 211 in most cities. You can go to thehotline.org, which will help you if you're being abused. There's, there's always help. Um, if you're an addict or an alcoholic, 
do whatever it takes. You did whatever it takes to get loaded, do whatever it takes to get sober and your life will change immensely. Mm, I love that. Love that so much. We'll also put that in the show notes as well. Uh, the, the references that you've given. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into 20 questions. You ready? Uh, really? <laughs> when I when I told you we were going to do 20 questions, she's like, wait a second, you're going to ask me 20 questions? Like, oh, you pick a number between one and 20 and we'll get you one question. So choose a number between one and 20. Seven. Who are the three people who have been most influential to you? Well, definitely my mother. Because she's my mom um whew, okay um I keep thinking about writing right sorry that was a loud noise I keep thinking about writing um so I would say gosh there's so many Hemingway mm-hmm. can I name four <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Hemingway, Kerouac, and Sandra Cisneros, okay. who are all very different writers, very different genres, I, I would almost say, but have all influenced me greatly. Love that. Well, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. We might have to have you back when you put that next book out. No pressure. Uh, but <laughs> you guys go ahead and uh, follow Nadia. Make sure you guys buy one or both of her books. Um, follow her journey. She's an amazing person. Like I say, you can't see her, but I can. And she just has such an amazing light about her. So keep doing what you're doing. Keep being the light. Keep uh, being a catalyst for others. I mean, you've come out the other side. A lot of people don't. Unfortunately, it ends in sometimes six feet underground and and the fact that you've made it through, you know, crack's not an easy drug to to kick, I've heard, you know, uh, my mother's addicted to crack. So I have a little bit of a history there. And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all you're doing for women and men out there, uh, these people that you're sponsoring and the words that you've written to be published and uh, the influence that you're having on people and the impact and, and just keep doing it. You know, you're amazing. I always end the show saying, be the change you wish to see in this world and you are being the change. So um, once again, you guys, if this, if this episode resonated with you at all, please be sure to share it with somebody uh, that you think it might resonate with. Or if you'll do me a favor, just go on to uh, Apple Podcasts and rate this episode as well. The more ratings we have, the more visibility we have as well. And, uh, you know, this is a labor of love for me. I just appreciate you guys tuning in. So, again, be the change you wish to see in this world. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Speak Loud. If this message resonated with you, please feel free to share it with anyone you feel could use the support. To find out more information about SHARE, our movement, and to join the cause, please visit sharethemovement.org. Until next time.